The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would turn to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29 will be using as a springboard a text here in Genesis 29, an account I think that we're all familiar with to one degree or another. In Genesis chapter 29, Jacob is, by the instruction of his father, going to Padan Aram to take a wife of the house of his uncle Laban. And he comes into the land in chapter 29 and he meets Rachel, his cousin, Laban's daughter, at a well. And she went to Laban and told him that Jacob, his relative, was there. I want to begin reading in this text from verse 15 through verse 30. In Genesis 29, 15, it says, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wage, wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done, to, and done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave his maid Billah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. I know that that's familiar to us and that we've heard many lessons, many sermons and applications from this text that have no doubt touched our hearts and caused us to realize the love that God has for us, but also, obviously, the love that Jacob had for Rachel. I want us to consider that a little bit this evening. Notice in verse 20, the striking description of his love, that Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. And what's perhaps even more striking than that is that his avaricious uncle Laban tricked him so that he could receive another seven years of labor. And Jacob didn't hesitate. While obvious, there was frustration with Jacob because of Laban's trickery and deception. He still served willingly another seven years to take the hand of Rachel in marriage. The love he had for Rachel outweighed the seemingly burdensome task to perform to receive her hand in marriage. I want us to consider some lessons from the strength of Jacob's love for Rachel. 
that after seven years of service, he was able to have her as his bride, or he served for seven years with that thought in mind, but they only seemed a few days because of his great love he had for her. Well, consider firstly the power of love as it's represented in this example of Jacob's love for Rachel. In the pulpit commentary, R.A. Redford said, the service of love is the consecration and consummation of human energy. I love that. We'll revisit that in a little bit with more consideration of its meaning. But the service of love is the consecration and consummation of human energy. Think about what humans can accomplish. Some can accomplish great tasks by themselves, and no doubt humans have accomplished so many tasks as they come together and join forces for good, but also for evil. They've accomplished great and terrible things as they've joined their abilities and their powers. But the single greatest power on earth that humans were created to exhibit and to feel and to show each other is love. It is the consecration and consummation of human energy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, as the Apostle Paul's life was nearing its end, he thought to encourage his protege, if you will, the young evangelist Timothy, so as to strengthen him when Paul left to carry on the work of an evangelist. And he spoke about the gift that Timothy had through the laying on of his hands. I believe that to be Timothy's ability, striking ability perhaps in comparison to others, to preach the Word of God effectively, his fervor and zeal for the Lord, and his knowledge through his diligent study of God's Word and ability to break that down and explain it to others in such a way which would edify the faith of others and bring more to Christ. And there was a danger of Timothy allowing the persecution of the cross as he preached the Gospel to weigh him down to where he would neglect the preaching of the gospel and the exercise of that gift. So the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7 said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He's essentially saying, you need to preach the gospel with the ability with which God has granted you, because God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, of fear. He's rather given us a power of love and a spirit of power and sound mind. The power he speaks of, the spirit of power that God has granted us, especially the evangelist Timothy in this text, is that of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. When, when we know the truth and we are convicted in the truth, there's nothing that can stand in our way and there's nothing that we can accomplish according to God's purposes. His word is powerful enough. And that would give Timothy great courage in the face of adversity. But as we skip love, because that's our focus, he says he's given him a spirit of a sound mind. This is the concept of self-control. It's the even-keeled mind that has a proper evaluation and estimation of things both good and bad in this life. I would like to describe it as Timothy was given by the power of the gospel in some ways the understanding that the spiritual is eternal and more powerful and great and enduring than what he would have to endure physically. And so he had a proper estimation of things. When we get things mixed up, 
that's when fear debilitates us. But the eyes of faith see past that. And that's why people that have the faith the Scripture speaks of, like in Hebrews 11, are able to do so many things for the Lord. They have the power, the spirit of a sound mind. But perhaps the greatest of these three, as that reminds us of a text in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love, is love. He's given Timothy, God has, a spirit of power and a spirit of a sound mind and a spirit of love. That is, it's the motivation of his service. Timothy, stir up the gift that is in you. Don't let persecution, don't let this suffering for the cross and the sake of the gospel cause you to be weighed down to paralysis and neglect of your duty. But understand God has given you the spirit of love. If you have love, Timothy, and that's what the gospel is intended to promote and produce. First Timothy speaks about that. The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. If you have that, then nothing, not even the weight of the cross can stand in your way. You can endure all things. Albert Barnes in his commentary on the New Testament says in this place that nothing will do more to inspire courage, to make a man fearless of danger, or ready to endure privation and persecution than love. The love of country and wife and children and home makes the most timid bold when they are assailed. And the love of Christ and of a dying world nerves the soul to great enterprises and sustains it in the deepest sorrows. Love is truly powerful. And we saw that on display with the love of Jacob that he had for Rachel. Seven years seemed only a few days. But what kind of love brings such power and motivation? We need to understand that. People in the world talk about the power of love, but they miss the mark because the love they speak of is romantic love. And so you might wonder why they speak of love as such a powerful thing, and yet it fails so often in relationships. This is to be understood, Colin Dulwich comments, as not effective but appreciative, that is, in comparison with the reward to be obtained for Jacob's service. The love he had for Rachel is not to be misunderstood as mere affectionate love. Certainly that was the case. And certainly that grew each and every day as a husband's love for his wife will grow each and every day. But it's not merely affectionate love, but it's a love which has a sincere evaluation for its object. It's appreciative love. So seven years seemed only a few days to Jacob in comparison to the value he saw in Rachel. Seven years, and then look who I get to marry. That was the love that Jacob had for Rachel, and that's why it was so powerful. And those seven long years is what we would probably think of them, seemed only a few days for him. Mere affection is apt to grow cold in certain circumstances, but the greater love which can be sustained, which is greater and transcendent in power, is the love which sees the value in its object and therefore acts on that evaluation. We see this with Jesus' answer to one of the questions the scribes had in Mark the 12th chapter. We remember the context in Mark 12 and verse 28 that one of the scribes came and having heard them reason together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? He had answered the Herodians, he had answered the Sadducees, now it's the scribes' turn. Which is the first commandment of all? And in Mark 12 and verse 29, Jesus gave the answer. The first of all the commandments is... 
quoting from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now we're given a little insight into this account in Mark's Gospel that we aren't in other accounts of the same instance. The scribe in verse 32 said to Jesus, after speaking and giving that answer, he said, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as oneself is more than all the burnt offerings or the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus saw that. He answered wisely. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom. After that, no one dared question him. I want us to consider Jesus' answer and what Jesus attributes to the scribe as pretty exceptional understanding of the depth of Jesus' answer. He said, you have answered rightly, teacher, and this is why, because there is only one God. And what that is, especially in the context of Deuteronomy 6, is to the exclusion of all other seeming gods, like we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He is exclusive, He is unique, He is one, He is transcendent, and therefore He is immense in value. And so what's the proper response to seeing an object, a person with such value as God, the one and only true God? The proper response is you shall love Him. With how much? We might say every fiber of our being. And how do you do that? You keep His commandments. And the similar consideration is seen with the second only uh, to that first of loving God, and that is the love of neighbor. Why is it the second greatest? And why is love the proper response to our neighbor? Because our neighbor is made in the image of God. And so this power of love is not merely affectionate love. There certainly is a facet of love which comes with affection. But the powerful love, what we understand in the New Testament to be agape love, is the love that is appreciative, as Colin Delich commented. It's the love which sees in its object the proper value of one made in the image of God or in God, the one and only true God, our creator, our sustainer, our protector, our provider, and the proper response that will overcome everything, like Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. I've given you a spirit, God says, of love, not of fear. It's love. That'll get us through anything God calls us to get through. It's no wonder that the Almighty God described Himself in 1 John 4 and verse 8 as love. God is love. It is, as we mentioned, the consecration and consummation of human energy. Consider also a lesson from the love that Jacob had for Rachel, perhaps the one that comes to our minds first. And that is the kind of committed love that he had for Rachel, which no doubt set the stage for the kind of love which he would express throughout their marriage. Love of marriage is to be committed. He wasn't only committed to the degree that he served for seven years, but he was so committed in love to Rachel that he was serving for seven years. And when he found out he needed to serve seven more, although perhaps frustrated, he didn't hesitate. Fourteen years he served for Rachel. The actions of Jacob, I think especially that description in verse 20 that those seven years seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. It's a romantic sentiment, no doubt whatsoever. 
That's a romantic sentiment that His love was so deep that seven years seemed only as a few days. But again, that's not the focus of the text. Romantic love can wax and it can wane. It ebbs and it flows. Sometimes it's easier to express that kind of affectionate and romantic love than other times. In any relationship, especially in the romantic relationship, it's easy sometimes above others to be that way. But it can ebb and flow. But what can be steady throughout it all is that love which sees the value in its object. That's where the commitment of love comes from. And that's what our marriages have to be molded by. Consider the very beginning of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. In verse 24, Moses records this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the comment of the inspired writer of Genesis. Because Adam and Eve didn't have a mother or father. They were the first creation of man. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground and Eve was taken out of man. His rib was made into woman and they didn't come from mother and father. You know, there's the saying we hear all the time, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You could ask the same question with the creation of man. The man came first. He didn't have a mother or father. The chicken came first. I think we can be confident in saying that. And so they didn't have a mother and father. Moses isn't talking about their particular situation, but this is obviously, and as we look at Matthew chapter 19, we know even more so, a foundation, a creation of the most ancient institution known to man from God, and that is the marriage institution. And from that time forth, this would be the pattern. Someone will be born into a home. They would depend on mother and father They would serve mother and father. Their whole life would be around mother and father, but there will come a time when they find their Rachel or they find their Jacob, so to speak, and they should leave mother and father and be joined to their spouse. And the two shall become one flesh. The word in the Hebrew translated joined is debak. Vine gives us the definition of that Hebrew word. It means to cling, to cleave, to keep close. He comments and says it's used in modern Hebrew in the sense of to stick to, adhere to. Debak yields the noun form for glue and also the more abstract ideas of loyalty and devotion. And that's what God is saying through Moses. That the two shall leave their father and mother be joined to each other, glued to each other, a permanent thing. It's not something that's to be broken. Man shall not separate, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, what God has joined together. And so where you have certainly a dependency with mother and father that is left in joining an interdependency between husband and wife, it's also leaving the devotion and service of mother and father to show that energy toward the spouse. In Matthew 15, we know that Jesus mentioned we should honor our father and mother, and the scribes and Pharisees' traditions broke that commandment of God. I'm not saying that we should not be devoted and serve our parents all our lives or all their lives. That's certainly the case. That's what honoring them entails. But you know, some, sadly, remain more committed to the family that they're supposed to be leaving than 
their spouse in the family that they've created in marriage. God created marriage as the greatest earthly commitment to engage in. And it's no wonder that we read of that as a type of Christ's love for the church. Our marriage and the love that we have for our spouses needs to be more than romanticism. It needs to be more than the sharing of likes and dislikes. Those things are extremely important. But more than anything, something that never has to change is our commitment to one another. You know, Ruth is, I think, a good example of this. And you might scratch your heads and wonder how that's the case, but if we turn to Ruth, we realize that Ruth was greatly committed to her husband. And Ruth really doesn't mention much about her first husband. We know that she went on to marry a man that belonged to her mother-in-law's family, and that would bring forth even the Christ. And it's a wonderful story of redemption, and God's providence is on full display in providing us a Savior all the time He was at work. But I want us to consider something. You might remember the story of Ruth in the period of the Judges. Not a very wonderful period of the history of the children of Israel where they rebelled and they went through hard times and then turned back to the Lord and the cycle continued rebellion and redemption and rebellion and redemption and rebellion and redemption. Ruth is right in the middle of that story of the judges. And it's in a time of famine in the land of Judea. So the family of Naomi, her husband and her sons go to Moab. And she has two daughters, Malon and Chilion, and they marry Moabitess women, Orpah and Ruth. But there is the wife of no, or the husband of Naomi who dies, and not only that, her two sons die, Malon and Chilion. So here you have Orpah and Ruth. Their only connection to Naomi was their husbands, who are Naomi's sons. But now they're dead, and there's been given. Naomi news about the famine coming to an end in Judea. God has provided for His people. So she's going to go back. And she tells them, y'all belong here. There's no tie between us anymore. If we return, am I going to have more children in my old age and you marry them? That's far beyond possibility. So you need to just stay here. But notice the commitment of Ruth to Naomi. In Ruth 1 and verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. That's a wonderful example of agape love or as the Hebrew text puts it, hased. It's a wonderful example of devotion and loyalty and the power of love and the commitment that love should be. But not just, let me suggest to you, the commitment of Ruth's love for her mother-in-law, Naomi. But it reflects, I think, implicitly, the committed love she had for her husband. It was either Malon and Chilean. We're not told which one of them belonged to Ruth, or Ruth belonged to. But the bond, the tie between Ruth and Naomi was that husband. And when that husband died, the bond between Ruth and Naomi was there, but it had to have been cultivated by her commitment to her husband. When she married her husband, 
His family became her own. And he, she was committed to him. Even after he passed, she was committed to his mother. Had Ruth not been committed to Naomi's son, she would not have been committed to Naomi after his passing. I think that's just an example of the type of committed love that we need to have for each other in our marriages. And along with that story, it's sad then that so many do not get along with their in-laws. I understand there will be difficulties. But when we marry a spouse, we need to recognize the things we value and honor in our spouse came from somewhere and thus value their parents as well. We need that commitment in our marriage. In Galatians 5 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul said, through love, serve one another. And while that's not talking about marriage, that certainly is the kind of love we need to have for each other. A service of love. In Ephesians 5 and verse 22, marriage is spoken about and it says, wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands are to be committed to their wife through love, but it's not the romantic love there. It's agape love. It's the love of service. Willing to lay down their lives for their spouses to essentially the expense of their own body. But what's interesting is Ephesians 5 says in verse 28, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And if we understand that, the one flesh relationship, then the service will be there. The wife likewise is not to resent her husband for him carrying out his duty of being the head of the house and having the authority, but is to respect him. In fact, in the last verse of this chapter of Ephesians 5, it says, let each of you in particular love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That word respects is the Greek word for reverence. She's to revere her husband. She's to have that deep and profound respect for him and for the duty he's been called to by God. And that takes this kind of committed love. Spouses need to be exclusively committed to each other for each other's well-being. In Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 9, wisdom tells us two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We need to view our marriages in that way. We're here for the other, and the other is here for us. And there's strength in that. I think ultimately, the key to unlocking a marriage which glorifies God is John 13, 34 where Jesus tells His disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And that's the key to unlocking any relationship in any circumstance which will glorify God, is looking at Christ as the pattern and as the standard. But consider also that Jacob's love and the strength therein, where that seven years seemed only as a few days because of how much he loved Rachel, I think, gives a good example of Christ's love for the church. 
The cross, let me suggest to you, was not the only sacrifice Jesus made. I think that we're true to the Word in saying it was the greatest sacrifice Jesus made. And allowing Himself to be taken and crucified on that cross when He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set Him free. But the cross wasn't the only sacrifice Jesus made. In Philippians, the second chapter in verse 5, when the Apostle Paul is encouraging the brethren there to have a humility about themselves and a self-denial for the service of others and viewing the interests, the needs of others better than their own. He gave the perfect example of Christ. Philippians 2 and verse 5, he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I want to tell you that the key to our exaltation is the same as Christ's. The cross comes before the crown. Humiliation and servitude comes before glorification. That's what the text is representing. It goes on to demonstrate that God has highly exalted Him First, using the word in verse 9, therefore, the reason God highly exalted him is because Jesus was willing to humiliate himself, to condescend to human needs to the extent of entering flesh himself. No, the cross was not the only sacrifice that Jesus made. I think that we're aware that Jesus started his three-year ministry at about the age of 30. And he died on the cross as about a 33-year-old man and ascended to heaven 40 days after. For 33 years, Jesus served God on earth and prepped himself for the most tasking ministry which would end in what seems to be the most negative way. Not his acceptance, but his murder. You think about that. Seven years Jacob served for Rachel. Thirty-three years Jesus served for the love of His people, of His church that He would die for. And surely they seemed only a few days even for Him. You think about eternity. Jesus left eternity to enter into time and go through the mundanities of life for us. John 6 and verse 51 stresses that He came down from heaven. That should be impressive to us more than a lot of things. Because when He left heaven, left eternity, entered into time and flesh, He didn't just experience the cross. That was the culmination of His trials. He experienced mere things like hunger and thirst. He experienced weariness and sorrow. He experienced frustration. He experienced disappointment. One of His disciples denied Him three times. He experienced temptation and pain and anguish. And He experienced the worst of all, death. An eternal being experienced death. The one who offers food which will completely destroy hunger and water which will completely quench thirst. Hungered and thirsty. Jesus loved us so much that not only He was willing to go to the cross, but He was willing to live 33 years on this sinful earth 
to get to that point. You think about that even more so. God could have sent Jesus as a grown man. He created Adam and Eve. He could have sent Jesus as a grown man already. Jesus dies on the cross as soon as He gets here. That's not the plan, though. He lived 33 years first. Why did He do it? He had that greatest motivating power. Love. God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, John 3.16. And you know what? Christ so loved us, He came. He submitted. In John 15 and verse 9, He tells His disciples, The Father loved me, and I also have loved you. Abide in my love. He goes on to say in verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. In 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks to this motivation. Why did He come to earth? And why did He go to the cross? In the context of our faith, and looking to all these examples in chapter 11, and they surround us as witnesses, almost a stand, stands filled with people cheering us on to finish that race. The one we look to is Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, and notice the description of what He did, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We know that joy to be multifaceted to a degree. He wanted the glory that He had before He left heaven. He prayed for that in John 17. Glorify Me as I have glorified you on the earth. But you know, part of Him glorifying God and Him being glorified by God is returning to the Ancient of Days as Daniel 7 prophesied to receive a kingdom full of people that he had purchased with his own blood. The joy set before him was not merely a return to the glorious state he had before the foundation of the world. But the joy that was set before him is the salvation of his sheep, lost souls being found, dead souls being resurrected. In Ephesians 5 and verse 25 it says, that Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, having not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. We are His bride. Jacob loved Rachel, his bride, so much. How much more does Christ love us? And He's doing everything He can and has done everything He could to present us pure for judgment so that we can be with Him for eternity. The love Christ had for His church is truly unmatched. We sing sometimes, Why did my Savior come to earth and to the humble go? Why did He choose a lowly birth? Why did He drink the bitter cup of sorrow, pain, and woe? And why on the cross be lifted up? Because He loved me so. He gave His precious life for me. Because He loved me so. We need to appreciate this. And we need to reciprocate it as well. I think that the love that Jacob had for Rachel where seven years seemed only a few days should be a reflection of our love that we have for Christ as He loved us. You know, our service to Christ is motivated by several things. God has given us several reasons that we should drop everything and follow Jesus. We should fear Him. We should revere Him. We should be in awe of His majesty and what He's done for us. We should also do it out of a sense of duty because we're created for the express purpose of fearing God and keeping His commandments. But He's also given us positive incentive. 
He said, you have a crown of righteousness waiting for you. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13 says that God works in us both to will and to do. He gives us the motivation. He works in us to will. He says, heaven is greater than you could ever imagine, and it's yours if you just sacrifice your life for me. And He's also given us the motivation of fearing hell. Don't fear Him who can destroy just your body, but Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But I want to tell you that the greatest motivation to serve Christ is how much He loved us. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, Paul said this, The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died and He died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. The chief response to His act of love for us is a reciprocity of love. We live for Him and sacrifice of so many things of our entire being because we love Him. Other motivations certainly are there, but if we don't ever realize this motivation, we miss the whole point. I'll remind you again of the comments on Jacob's love for Rachel from R.A. Redford in the pulpit commentary. He said these exceptional words in my estimation, that the service of love is the consecration and consummation of human energy. And consider that in light of a context that we've already looked at. When Jesus responded to the scribe in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. What is all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind if it's not the summation of human energy? You know, there's a lot of people that have the energy within their physical body to do certain things and they don't do those things because they don't have the energy within their mind. They don't have the motivation. And there's some who have the energy within their body and perhaps even the energy within their mind, but they only do it to a certain degree and neglect the greatest degree because they lack the energy of their heart. But when the heart, soul, and mind, every facet of man's being, as I mentioned before, we might describe it as every fiber of our being, it comes together. That's the summation of the energy that God has blessed us with in creating us. We're not just animals. We're made in the image of God. We're given rational minds capable of love as God has loved us. And love is just that. It's the consecration and consummation of human energy. It's the consecration of human energy because while we can expend energy in so many different areas of life, the single greatest focus that we should have is love for God. We should set all our energy aside Set it all apart in a special place. That's what consecration means. And dedicate it to the love of God. If we don't, we miss everything. And if we do that, that's the consummation. That is its highest achievement. The very purpose of our existence is to love God. And so many people take the energy God has created them with and blessed them with. The ability to think. The ability to love. They leave God out of the equation and waste it. Love for God is human energy consummated. And wouldn't you know, Jesus goes on to ask them a question in chapter 22 and verse 41 when the Pharisees gather together. 
He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. So Jesus reaches a necessary inference from the text. How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he son? They weren't able to answer it. What Jesus is doing is drawing necessarily an inference, an implication from that text that the Messiah, as Jesus claims to be, is not just the son of David. He is God. He's the son of God. And he just told them that the greatest commandment is to love God with every fiber of your being. And I am God. He's telling them, love me, accept me, follow me and serve me. That's your purpose. And he tells us how in John 14, 15. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. And our service of love, though, is by nature sacrificial. Therefore, it's not always easy. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But what he didn't mean is that it would just be a cakewalk. He was saying there's great rest from sin, and that's the greatest rest you could receive. The burdens of the cross are so much lighter than the burdens of sin and death. So come to me, and you will find rest for your souls. But in Mark the 8th chapter, we know what discipleship costs. When Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Our love for Christ is expressed in self-sacrifice and full devotion in all parts of our life to His will, never being ashamed of His words. Always willing to forfeit this earthly life and all its various parts and places to the extent that we're able to forfeit it all together in dying for our Lord. That's what our service to Him is. And it's not always easy. 1 Peter 1 talks about how we're tested through fires of trial so that our faith can be found genuine. But here's something comforting. Just as Jacob was able, because of his love for Rachel, to work seven years, not to mention seven more because of Laban's deception. And those seven years seemed only a few days. You had better believe that's going to be our situation to the millionth degree. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, Paul said, For this reason I also suffered these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I believed and persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. And he tells us a little bit about what he's talking about in chapter 4 and verse 6. I'm already, he said, being poured out as a drink offering. That's what he's committed to God. He's committed his life as sacrificial and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. If we're willing to go through this very small amount of time in comparison to eternity, through many tribulations, as Acts 14 says, entering the kingdom of God. If we're willing to do that, when we get on the other side, it will seem even less 
than only a few days because it's eternity. It's eternal rest. It's eternal reward. It's eternal victory. It's eternal happiness. It's eternal love. In Revelation 22 and verse 1, John records this vision, a revelation. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, because the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Our life of serving love for Christ, as much sacrifice as it may demand, when we reach the goal of heaven, will seem only a few days. Are we willing to make those sacrifices? Do we have that kind of love for our Lord and Savior in reciprocation of the love that He had for us? No doubt there's many other things that we could speak about, but keep it at this, that Jacob's love for Rachel is impressive. And from that we need to understand the power of love. We need to be committed to such a degree in our own marriages We need to realize the depth of love that is poured out into our hearts by the revelation of the Holy Spirit that God had for us in sending His Son. And we need to reciprocate that love in that committed and powerful degree. If you're here this evening and I've not obeyed the gospel, the first step toward that commitment is baptism for the remission of your sins. It's how you can be added to His body to serve Him day in and day out. And we can assist you in that this evening if you want to make that step. If there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, the invitation is extended to you as well. Come forward while we stand.